If you are sick of oppressive religious systems, but are not willing to let go of faith altogether, this podcast is for you. In this show, we hear from inspirational people tackling real issues of faith that actually matter in this world. Welcome to Jesus Never Ran. The church is wrong to argue that the Bible justifies any sort of discrimination, oppression, marginalization of those who are not straight. Well, the reason why you ain't got no black folks in your congregation is because we don't show up to places where we're not welcome, and we know we're not welcome based off the conversations you demand that we don't have because of the questions you insist on us not asking because of the answers you don't want to live. And the idea that the best being in the universe can't come up with a better solution to the problems of the universe than to torture people forever, eternally. You just start thinking, if that's as good as God is, this is a pretty depressing universe. Hey, before we get going, a couple of words from our sponsors. Rise Nutrition. You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. That's Rise with a Z. And they're all about a healthier, happier life. So let their wellness coaches give you the personal support to help you achieve your wellness goals. After all, that is their mission. And here's the thing, just for Jesus Never Ran listeners, if you go to their Facebook page, you can message them and get a free wellness profile. That's a 20-minute phone conversation, absolutely free for Jesus Never Ran listeners. So check them out today. Also, Infinity Beverages at www.infinitybeverages.com. They will deliver anything you need right to your door. And don't forget that Thursday is buy one, get one for club members if you're in the Eau Claire, Wisconsin area. That's Infinity Beverages at www.infinitybeverages.com. Hey, fellow walkers, hope everyone is doing wonderful and that this podcast finds you well. Thanksgiving is right around the corner. And let me tell you, I'm thankful that N.T. Wright is on this podcast for the second week in a row. This week, he is going to be talking all about his brand new book, just came out in October of this year, called Broken Signposts. The tagline is, How Christianity Makes Sense of the World. So, enough of me talking. Let's get right into the interview, and let me have Mr. Wright share with you what the premise of his new book is. It goes back a long way. Uh, about oh, 20 some years ago, I was asked by a publisher to do a sort of new version of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, not, not just to update the book, but to write a new book, but which would try to do the same kind of thing, to say, here are questions lots of people have, here's how it works, here's the Christian story, let's see what happens when we fit them together. And that book turned out to be Simply Christian, which was eventually published in 2005. It took me quite some time to write it. And during that period, many times I remember sitting in church, singing hymns, listening to scripture, thinking there are these big things which everyone is basically signed up to, like justice and freedom and love. And we all know that without them, human life is random and meaningless, but we all know that they're puzzles and that we get them wrong and philosophers write big books about them and we still disagree. Um, and so I started then to explore them and the initial exploration was in 
the opening chapters of Simply Christian, where it was justice, spirituality, relationships, I think I called it, and beauty. I didn't want to say love because the word love is so many-sided, though I now revert to it in this book. And then uh, in Simply Christian, I, I referred to those four as echoes of a voice. And I, what I have in mind is if I stepped out outside my front door here and heard somebody calling my name, I would look up and down the street and if I couldn't see anyone, I would think, funny, it sounded as though that was me that was being called, but I'm not sure what's going on. And I think that's how many people perceive justice and freedom and so on. It's something, this really matters, but I'm not quite sure what it means for me or for our society or whatever. And in particular then, when I was doing the Gifford Lectures in Aberdeen two years ago, chapter seven of the Gifford Lectures, I used this motif of broken signposts. And just in a single chapter, I brought them all together. So it's quite a brief exposition. And I made the point that basically, um, we all know justice matters, but we all mess it up globally, internationally, locally, personally. Likewise, with love, with beauty, with freedom, with power, etc. Um, and that this is a genuine puzzle, a genuine question to drive the question of natural theology. How do we know about God and the world if there are these things that all human beings know are important, but all human beings know that we get them wrong? And you're faced with two alternatives. Either you say, well, we, we sort of get them right, so they really are pointers to God, or you say, the fact that they let us down means that the whole thing is a sick joke. You go back to Jean-Paul Sartre, that, that it's just all a nonsense. And I, for me, the moment of truth came, I hope it was truth, when I realized one day I was thinking about this and we praying about it and so on, that of course, the story of Jesus climaxes as he goes to the cross, precisely in justice being denied, in freedom being trampled upon, in love being cast out, etc., etc., in power being abused. And so that the message of the cross and the story of the cross carries the power that it carries precisely because we all recognize that story. It's where we live with these broken signposts. This is what it looks like in our world when justice doesn't work out, when love crashes in on itself, when the sky goes dark after the sunset, when power is abused. All the things which fill our newspaper columns and make people weep and say you know, the world is a terrible place. Jesus came to the place where all that is true. And that, I think, is why the cross retains such incredible power cross-culturally even when people don't know very much about jesus something about that story says this is where the broken signposts actually come into full focus and it's the point at which if we listen we may hear god saying i have come to the place which you all know matters to take the pain of it on myself. So it's a long answer, but that's that's basically what the book's about. So in Broken Signposts, really what you're doing is you're taking the book of John and you're trying to help us make sense of the world through the eyes of John's gospel. But I think one of the questions, just to put it bluntly, that a lot of people have right now is, does Christianity matter at all today? With everything that's going on in the world, does Christianity have a place in this world, and can it be helpful at all? 
I think it was my American publisher who gave it the subtitle, something like um, How Christianity Explains the World or something, something like that, um, which is interesting because, of course, often people want to explain Christianity. And what I'm saying instead is, no, um, let the story be the story. Tell the story of Jesus, but with these particular antennae tuned in, and you'll see that the places in the world which are genuinely puzzling actually come into a different sort of resolution. It isn't a way of saying, ah, so we were mistaken that justice actually does basically get done and the beauty remains, etc. because they don't. But that this story comes to the point of brokenness and then says, the creator of the world, who made the world so that justice and freedom and truth and so on really do matter, he is through Jesus in the process of taking that brokenness and fixing it which is this the most amazing, wonderful sign. And so the story of Jesus and his death and resurrection is a story which says all those questions that you came up with as a result of what a terrible place the world seems to be, they were the right questions. You don't have to wave them away and say, no, no, don't ask naughty questions, just believe. Yes, precisely ask those hard questions because the gospel comes to the place where those hard questions all collapse in on themselves. And then the story of Jesus comes through and says, now, those of you who follow Jesus, here is your agenda. It's called justice, freedom, spirituality, beauty, truth, etc. Um, go to it, but do it in this way and do it in the power of the Spirit, and then we will be people who are bringing signs of hope, signs of new creation to birth within the world. Oh, I love that so much. And one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is simply that it's not so much about what you believe, although that's certainly important. It's much more about how we believe because you can believe the right thing, but believe it in a way that's hurtful and harmful to others. And it certainly isn't what Jesus stands for. And I would argue on the same front that you could believe the wrong thing and believe it in a way that's really helpful and really healing to our world. So it's much less about the what and much more about the how. Now, you could have probably grabbed from the entirety of the Bible for this specific book, but you chose to pinpoint in on the Gospel of John. Was there a reason? I'm sure there is, but why did you choose the Gospel of John for this book? It, it, that was a thought experiment. Um, I guess two or three years ago, before I wrote this book, um, my colleague David Seamoth, who's also a Wisconsin man, um, uh, he, he and I are making these online courses at NT Write Online. We were thinking about possible courses, and I had just written the Gifford chapter on broken signposts. And I said, wouldn't it be fascinating as a thought experiment to go through John's Gospel and see how these different things click into place? Because a lot of people think of John as a book about love, which it is, but people don't realize that it's also a book about freedom. It's also particularly a book about justice. The whole motif of Jesus being on trial runs right through the book. So I thought it might actually illuminate John's gospel, and it might also use John to illuminate what I wanted to say about these signs. And David said, great idea, let's run it. So we did a short online course, which is available on that. And it was after that, 
that I actually wrote the book. Normally, I would have done it the other way, write the book first, then do the course. But but that's just the way it worked because of my rather crazy schedule. Um, so it, it, it was a thought experiment, but it was particularly that sense that John's Gospel is is rather obviously about justice and freedom and power, but that most people don't recognize that. But when you get Jesus standing in front of Pontius Pilate, what are they discussing? They're discussing kingdom and truth and power. And then Pilate gets it all wrong by crucifying Jesus. God raises Jesus from the dead, and John leaves us to conclude that even though Pilate seemed to have won the argument, in fact he lost, and that the genuine version of kingdom and truth and power is now launched upon the world through the risen Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. So John's Gospel was a wonderful vehicle for doing that. And the more I was writing the book, the more I thought, yes, actually, this this works. This this is going to be an exciting project. In the book Broken Signposts, you talk about seven signposts. So let's dig into at least a few of them to give the listeners a little bit of a feel for what is in this book. And I want to start with justice because in lieu of everything going on in our world right now, that term seems a little bit fuzzy and it can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And you not only include it in broken signposts, you start with it. This is the first one that you talk about. So can you unpack the idea of justice a little bit for us? It goes at every level. One level, if somebody steals my car or my bicycle or something, I want there to be a justice system which will sort that out, um, deal with the offender appropriately, and basically restore what's lost or get me a new bike or whatever it is. Um, At the global level, then uh, a lot of us are very concerned at the moment about the state of the world with uh, not only America and Europe, Um, in turmoil, but also Russia and China and India and the Middle East as always and Northeast Africa as often um, and and then the the terrible things going on to the east of Turkey right now, Azerbaijan and Armenia, etc. How do we do justice? Does the United Nations mean anything anymore? And if so, how could we have a global justice system? You know, we have a a court of international justice in The Hague. A lot of countries sneer at it and say, oh, it's just a a tool for imposing certain Western values on some of the rest of us, and we don't really acknowledge it. Um, But most of us think that actually some sort of global doing of justice is actually vital because otherwise what we're left with is vigilante systems where one country says, I don't like what's going on over there and I'm powerful enough, so I'm going to go and deal with it. Um, And, you know, we British did that for 100 years in the 19th century. That's how we ran the world. And we've been licking our wounds for the last century and wishing we'd never done it because it's very costly and it has all sorts of bad consequences. And so when I see other nations trying to do the same, I think, please don't do that. This is not justice. This is simply uh, doing your own bullying and calling it justice. So then between the global thing and the deeply personal thing, we then have justice within a country, within a city, within a a county, or in your case, a state. Um, 
how is it done? Do we trust the forces of law and order? And I, I have met many Americans, including friends of mine, who've said, well, we in America have this history where we don't really trust the forces of law and order because they can very easily be corrupted, which is why we all have to carry guns or whatever. We in Britain hear that argument and we think, please don't go there because it doesn't look like justice to us. That looks like vigilantism. And for me, Romans 12 and 13 are pretty important. At the end of Romans 12, Paul says, no private vengeance. The beginning of Romans 13, he says that the state has authorities whose job it is to keep the peace and basically to do justice. And those two go together. You don't do vigilantism because the state should be doing that. And then if you say, well, the state isn't doing it, then the church has a right and a duty, according to John 16, to speak the truth to power and to remind those in power of what their job should be. And because the church has backed off from that and left it to the newspapers um, to hold governments and, and local authorities to account, then all sorts of things have gone horribly wrong. And whoever owns the newspaper calls the shots there, etc., etc. There is a role for the churches to play in discerning what justice really is in any particular case. And of course, it's a big biblical theme, going back to the idea of God's own justice. God made the world and wants it to work wisely and justly. Um, the church has to articulate that. We've not been good at that. We haven't trained uh, wise Christians to do that very well. And so we are in the place where we are, but we need to get back to it. My goodness, there's a, there's a scope for a whole book there, but I hope I'm not the one to write it because I can see ideas spinning off into the distance. Professor Wright, I was really excited when I saw that you included a chapter of beauty that is one of your broken signposts. And for me, beauty is one of the primary things that draws me toward God, that draws me toward the divine. Can you share a little bit about why you decided to include this in the book? I struggled when I was planning that chapter on beauty because I thought, am I just um, trying to force an idea onto the text where it doesn't really belong? And then the more I thought about it, um, you see, I, I, I love poetry. I've always loved poetry since I was young. And I, I love good, evocative writing. Um, and if you ask me why I love it, I, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, you can sense uh, whatever it is you sense when you sense beauty in good writing or good description. Of course, a great writer very seldom says it was a beautiful scene. The great writer describes the scene and you, the reader, think, wow, that's beautiful. Um, and in a sense, it spoils it if the writer says it was so beautiful. And, and for me, the archetypal biblical beauty scene, other than Genesis 1 and 2, which is just amazing and lavish, is for me the temple, um, uh, sorry, the, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple, but particularly the tabernacle in the wilderness for this reason. But here are the children of Israel, they're out in the desert, and the desert is a place where almost by definition, beauty has been eliminated. It's hot and it's dry and it's dusty and it's you know, maybe a few mountains and mounds, but it's not a place of beauty. Um, but then, whew, the children of Israel are called to, to give all that they've got in terms of colored thread, in terms of jewelry, in terms of uh, different kinds of wood and stone and so on, to make this amazing thing, this tent, this tabernacle, which is just a stunning work of art. 
and and it's described lavishly in the book of Exodus. And you think there they are in the desert, and this amazing thing, this multicolored, this this bright thing. And of course, the greatest thing about it is that it's the place where God Himself is going to come and live. And then you realize that's why it's got to be beautiful, because God is the Creator God who made beauty and wants us to relish it and enjoy it and comes to live in the middle of it. And so then when I see in the rest of the Bible allusions back to the tabernacle, to the temple, and when I see John particularly saying the word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst and we gazed upon his glory, then I think John is saying this is the most beautiful story you can ever imagine. Now read on until you get the scene in the garden in the early morning when it went still dark and Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she runs to and fro and then Jesus appears and she's weeping. And if this isn't a beautiful scene, I don't know what is. This is new creation happening in front of our eyes. And we are meant to say, wow, in the same way we say, wow, when we're standing before an amazing painting in a gallery or museum. And I think that's what John's gospel is meant to do as a whole. It's meant to evoke that sense of, of aesthetic appreciation. Trouble is, of course, the idea of aesthetics in the 18th century was split off from the idea of spirituality. That should never have been the case, that the sublime had replaced the sacred. And it's only when we put them back together again, we realize something about the wholeness of God's world, and the wholeness of God's new creation. Now, I don't want to give away everything that's in this book, so I don't want to keep going and talk about all seven of the broken signposts, but I do want to make sure that we hit on one more, and that is truth. The reason I want to talk a little bit about this one is because when I say the word truth, there are many people listening to this podcast who cringe. And I would include myself in that because this is one of those words that has really been misused and abused in Christian and religious cultures. So can you share with us what you mean when you talk about truth? Yeah, I mean, we all know that today um, the idea of fake news or fake truth or, or whatever is, is out there. People have realized that if you are powerful and have the ear of the public this way or that through the media or whatever, then you can tell all sorts of lies. And even if half the people know their lies, enough people will believe them to make a difference in the world things will happen as a result of the lies that you told. And so now with post-modernity, we're all very much aware that claims to truth are claims to power and that claims to truth often are laughable to anyone who knows the first thing about what's actually going on. But if enough people believe it, then power is what is going to follow. So just as people say truth is the first casualty in war because people put out propaganda about what's going on, so it's actually a casualty in business, in politics, in, in sadly in family life all over the place. So then the question is, well, how, how can we know the truth? Is there any truth? Or is it all slipping through our fingers? Is it all just your truth and my truth? And does it collapse into subjectivity? And so what's happened is this sort of heavy modernist reaction to that problem, that postmodern problem, which is that 
all societies in the Western world, at least now, try to scramble back to some sort of truth by having people fill out forms about everything. I had to fill out something the other day online um, in order to carry on as a university teacher, in order that I should be certified that uh, that I'm a true whatever. Um, and that will just go into somebody's filing cabinet in case the organization gets sued for further on down the line. And, and this is a crazy way to live. We don't trust one another anymore. And so truth and trust are at a discount and we're trying to claw back to them, but the way we're doing it really isn't isn't working, isn't meeting the problem. And it's into that world that John's gospel injects the idea of truth in terms of new creation. That insofar as truth is about something which corresponds, something we say which corresponds to the way the world is, well, Jesus is launching the new world, and Jesus is speaking the truth which is the truth about the way creation really is. And here we see that creation and new creation aren't that far apart. It's just that the old creation is fraught with puzzles and pain and sickness and death and lies and so on. And that the new creation is the reality towards which the old creation at its best is aspiring. And Jesus is speaking new creation into being and calling us by the Spirit to do the same. And that's why, I mean, the wonderful scene when Pilate is facing Jesus. And uh, Pilate says, so are you a king? And Jesus says, I came to tell the truth, which looks as though it's a non sequitur, but actually it's the right answer because the sort of kingdom that Jesus has is the kingdom of the new creation. And Jesus is telling the truth of that new creation in order that he will be the king in that new world. And Pilate just says, huh, truth, what on earth is that? Um, and, and sneers at it, because Pilate knows perfectly well that in the old world, truth is a function of power, and he's got quite a lot of power, so he makes his own truth. And he can't stand the thought that Jesus is speaking the new truth, which is eventually going to take over the whole world uh, when the kingdom of God is complete. Professor Wright, the final question that I've been asking most all of my guests on Jesus Never Ran is, where do they see hope? in this world or do they see hope in this world with everything that's going on right now but i want to adjust the question just a little bit for you what is your hope for somebody who picks up this book and reads it what do you desire us to get from broken signposts i suppose two uh, things which appear quite different, but obviously in the book they try to mesh together. W one is that I would love people to read John's Gospel for all it's worth. And, and, and John's Gospel is so often seen as just the spiritual gospel. It'll help you into a relationship with Jesus, which it will. It'll help you say your prayers, which it will. But many people read it without realizing that it'll help you reflect profoundly and importantly on the whole of the world and the way it is and your life and the way it is. And so I'd love to have that sort of sense of a, a richer, many-sided reading of John's Gospel emerging from this in, in prayer and study and, and so on. But then the other thing is, the book is a sort of apologetic. People have described me as an apologist, but, and I think you hinted at this before, um, when you were talking about uh, the American evangelical world with its emphasis on truth as a rather, there it is, bang, it's just the facts and you've got to believe it. That is actually a very much a rationalist approach. And I think what's happened more in America than in my country, though we have it a bit here too, is that the rationalist critique of Christianity in the 18th century particularly, 
these people like Gibbon and David Hume and so on, was then met by some Christians thinking that they had to answer the rationalist skeptics in their own terms, and so built up this notion of truth and reason, which we could just clobber them back as hard as we could. And there are some who write in that mode to this day. That's never been my style. What I'm hoping for is a different sort of apologetics, which says this world is a very strange place. We can't argue from things we observe in this world step by step by step so that we just get to God at the top of, of that. If we try, we find that the thing collapses. But then and only then, when we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. And that is a different, I think that's a different sort of apologetic. And it's only when somebody has been embraced by that possibility that then their mind and heart might be opened uh, to see and possibly to believe the larger things like resurrection and new creation, which are coming at you all the time, only we didn't see it. What an unbelievable honor to have N.T. Wright on the podcast this week and last week as well. Friends, the holidays are upon us. Next week is Thanksgiving. That is something else, and that's something to be excited about. So we're going to have a special Thanksgiving episode next week. Then we're going to roll right into four episodes on Advent, a progressive Christian view of Advent. That's going to be a ton of fun. And then, man, we've got some incredible guests coming to kick off the new year. And I'm going to reveal all of that to you in the coming weeks. So many exciting things I can't even tell you. As always, it's just an honor to be with you. If you want to support this podcast, make sure you subscribe to it. Give it a five-star rating and write a review. Of course, of course, of course, buy N.T. Wright's new book, Broken Signposts. I'll put a direct link in the notes of this episode so you can go get it. Also, check out N.T. Wright online. Literally thousands of teachings from one of the foremost experts on the New Testament that is alive today. Until next time, keep walking.